0: in connection to Science Night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James and with me as always is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we're talking about oceans of open data, malleable metal, and creepy crawlers. In the second half, we'll feature my conversation with Dr. Andre Isaacs, an associate professor of organic chemistry at Holy Cross University. But first, the news. Data is something that people engaging in science tell me is important. They can't get enough of the stuff. And in an era where most of us carry a mini-supercomputer with loads of sensors and apps to categorize and share that precious, precious data, scientists are coming up against a problem that seemed inconceivable just 50 years ago. They have too much dang data! In an article for Popular Science, Charlotte Hu covers the current trend towards giant open sets and the things scientists and companies are coming up with to process them. So what do we think about these oceans of open data sources?
1: Absolutely awesome. Think about how quickly we were able to develop vaccines for COVID. Yes. That is all based on the backs of these open science platforms. And that is fantastic. We were able to solve a major public health problem quickly in a speed that's never been done before because scientists were sharing. I've never used really sensitive data. The stuff that I collect, the data that I collect from my work is not as guarded as perhaps Steffi's might be because it's not as competitive of a research enterprise that I'm involved in. I saw Steffi nodding her head here because these open platforms are amazing. So how does this affect your work, Steffi?
2: That is a great question. So, I mean, academia, you hear the publisher perish, right? So mm, that right. method historically has led to people hoarding data because you're trying to be the first person to publish these observations. We're actually switching more to open source, and open Um, knowledge—it's part of in our contracts with Department of Energy. Actually, publicly funded, so I I think definitely we we should be sharing everything. So we're switching more to open data, open codes, which is great. There's communities of people that are offering up codes um, and helping each other out, and I think that really speaks to acknowledging when you're more open, you can actually advance things a lot faster. Like Jason mentioned, COVID and fusion energy. So I love this trend. It's accelerating things faster. Um, With this iNaturalist, it's allowing people to be citizen scientists Mm -hmm. and collect data and provide these large open data sets. And it's pretty amazing. I actually found the iNaturalist um, forum online where they document all of the publications by year that mm-hmm. use the data set from this app. And they, these are things like tracking. Um, I'm just reading off a couple of things that I've, saw, I've seen. Fewer butterflies seen by community scientists across warming and drying landscapes of American West. Um, new species that have been identified. Also, if they're broadening their species or animals are in new areas or expanding due to climate change or other, you know, interactions as well, that's, this is new science that can be done because of this.
1: Have you used the iNaturalist app at all?
2: I did. I used it in my office on fake plants. So I identified the fake flowers. It does not work on Lego flowers though. (laughs) That's good to know. Yeah.
1: So I've been a so I've been actually an iNaturalist user for several years now, um, oh. which just randomly popped up on you know is one of the things we're going to talk about this week, and yeah. uh, and I got very excited because I have we've mapped our entire yard here, and we've mapped my entire the entire uh, yard in, at my mother in law's house in St. Louis, and it's because I've always been terrible at plant identification anyway, and my youngest has always had a green thumb. He's always loved flowers and plants. And so he used to ask me, what is this? What is this? And I was terrible, right? So download, I, I found it. It was an NSF-funded, broader impact, actually, of a of a grant. So the NSF has these two merit review criteria that are used to judge whether or not something's going to get funded through the NSF. First is the intellectual merit. You know, how important is the problem that's being solved and how, the approach to, to solving it? Is there high intellectual merit um, is there a good reason to do this work? But the second and equally important criterion is what are the broader impacts of this work for society? And this was a broader impact from a grant. Um, the development of iNaturalist was the broader impacts from a grant, or at least part of it that was funded to to start the citizen science sort of revolution in a new way, right? And so we we downloaded this. I found out about it, you know, several years ago. Kind of don't even know how many years ago it was. And we've been messing around with it at my house. It became really useful early on in the pandemic when we would go out far away from our house just to wander in in the woods because there wasn't much else to do but we always had to get our kids up and moving and out of the house because we wanted to make sure that you know they were staying active and all that stuff so we would take our devices and we would just map all the species we could um and it would be good for you know a good two hours (laughs) and uh you know, of entertainment. And then, uh, and then it was, okay, we'll go back home. And I love the fact that all of those data are now shared in this big, giant repository. That's actually hosted by Amazon, Amazon warehouse, web services. services. Right? Web services that's what it is, right? Web services. So, um, which is amazing, right? I mean, there are a few computers that can handle this vast amount of data and Amazon is one of those places.
0: I I think maybe the actual story and what you're talking about is that this boom in data came from parents that were struck with having 24-7 care requirements during the pandemic just finding anything to do to make bedtime easier. Like, yes, let's go out and move around for two to three hours and and, uh, scout out our neighborhood.
1: That's right. I mean, I think our our household single handedly yeah. caused this boom in data, right? And so, <laughs> yeah. If do you if anybody an acknowledgement
2: on the papers? <laughs>
1: I don't. I don't need an acknowledgement. Although I bet my youngest would like one.
0: I don't have a lot to say about iNaturalist I because I've, I'm literally downloading it now after hearing you two talk about it's it so so, cool. so uh, nicely. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure I'll have more to report later, but uh, but right now I don't have any iNaturalist stories. But I do have. Some open source stories just generally because I am not a scientist. I am a science communicator. And one of the things that is really useful is the field that I'm most closely associated with being anatomy and biological anthropology slowly getting pulled into the open source uh area of science and having a lot of 3d scans like high resolution 3d scans of fossils up on something called morphosource which is really great because all you need is a 3d printer and you can have these really great fossil things that you can take to your science communication events with little kids and they love to see 3d printed out fossils of homo naledi which i can do that's right that's amazing now. um mm-hmm. it's true yeah that's not that's, that's a very new thing in biological anthropology, specifically, where fossils are guarded wow. very closely. Yeah, it's pretty but crazy. people like Lee Berger are trying to change, change that. Lee Berger and Jerry De Silva, friends, friend of the show currently and potential future friend of the show. Please come on our show, Lee.
1: Yeah, we'll get Lee Berger to come on the show. We'll start the campaign on, Lee. now.
0: I thought that was an interesting part of the article, too, is because there are these huge, huge open data sets... We have to have like new fields that pop up to curate them and use them and make the information more meaningful. Uh, And I never really thought about it, but my inbox is always getting bombarded with new data visualization workshops. Bioinformatics has become a really popular degree track in most uh, universities, so all of this is popping up because we have so much information now. we are truly in the information age
2: yeah, so this is using machine learning so this is this is a way that you can look at big data sets to look for statistical relationships in the data to actually infer something or predict things, and so I think that 's fascinating that they're allowing that this is you know bleeding into this field as well. But with a challenge becomes whenever you're using machine learning or any kind of algorithms on big sets of data is making sure that you're not introducing bias in the system. So this feeds back into why these all need to be open Mm -hmm. source. So scientists can really check the algorithms, look for any biases in the data. Bias can really lead to harmful outcomes when you're looking at big data sets.
0: So do we want to swim out of the ocean of data? On a, on a wave of malleable metal.
2: Oh, that was, that was really good. In
0: 1991, the trajectory of my life was changed forever, with the release of Terminator 2 Judgment Day to home video. You see, my parents thought Seven was too young for someone to see a hyperviolent movie about the coming robot apocalypse in the theaters, but a teenager running the counter of a local video store in Gratz, Pennsylvania, did not share these concerns. That's when I saw the T-1000 liquid metal terminator for the first time, creating a lifelong fascination with the idea of creating things out of liquid metal. Which brings us to our next story. Michael Dickey, a chemical engineer at North Carolina State University, go Wolfpack, is looking at gallium, a metal that is liquid at room temperature, as a potential key to unlocking electronics that are smaller and more flexible But without that whole pesky robot apocalypse thing coming along with it. So what do we think about this malleable metal and the uses that it could unlock?
2: I think it's amazing. Mm -hmm. I think it kind of opens up the door for just the opportunities that you have when you have a flexible circuit where you can use it. Um, There was even mention about putting it on your skin and having like a tattoo that is a circuit Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the possibilities you can have with that are fantastic.
1: Yeah, this stuff's very cool. I, I can't help but think of all the sort of downstream effects that, that will happen, right? I mean, if it becomes as useful as maybe predicted, um, it will become sort of a niche you use first, and then it'll start to sort of trickle out into the random everyday things, right? And that's what I'm kind of excited to see what what happens, right? Like what kind of interesting consumer electronics or silly Christmas fad toys, right? Suddenly incorporate these cool, this cool gallium circuitry. And sort of what does that mean for how toys change, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the big limitations of non-malleable metal circuitry is that those circuits break. This isn't going to break. And therefore, those annoying toys that eventually do break and parents are grateful for aren't going to die. And yes. that, right, they're going to take a beating and and really keep on going. It'll be interesting to see what the downstream effect of that is. Truthfully, yes. I, I have to tell you what's really most exciting for me is how this might affect fencing down the road. Right? Oh, let's,
2: oh yeah. Right? So, because,
1: you know, if you've got a bendable metal here and you're attacking people with swords, um, right now the circuitry breaks a lot, right? I mean, the wires break constantly. It's a contact sport. And so it's not surprising, and you're you know bending the blade of your of your weapon. If you don't have to worry about the wires or the circuits breaking, that's going to be pretty cool.
2: It's also fascinating from the how these circuits can operate standpoint too. So we're used to computer chips that are doing computation logic to infer input and then respond, right? Um, these can actually you can think about designing machines that use what they term uh, soft logic. So. This is based on simple reactions based on the changes in electrical resistance across the grid of wires. And that just opens up the avenue for things like turning off and on switches when you just press a metal instead of doing a computation to do that.
0: I was hoping that somebody would have more understanding on on the panel than I do of that. Is the thought that that would make it more fine-tunable would it make it quicker would it do all of these things or would it just simpler. simpler yeah okay so you have to have less computational power for these simple uh exercises that's
2: my take on it yeah because it's just looking at the okay. resist change in resistance in the wires instead of mm-hmm. going through computer chips and processing
0: So what I'm most excited about is how this will affect gaming. They didn't talk about how it would affect gaming, but I'm sure it's going to somehow. The video game industry is a huge, a huge profit thing, and it is driving tons of innovation in tech. So you know there's going to be some kind of cool liquid metal power Mm -hmm. glove that you can use to play Mario Kart (gasps) with, and I can't wait. We're getting closer
2: and closer to the
1: Oasis. Is what it is. Yeah, I, I was thinking oh, Ready man.
0: Player
2: One too. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I hope so, and um, I hope we stay away from something like Sword Art Online, and we go into the Ready Player One because that was way cooler.
2: We can bring up gal- the the fact that the gallium is used, oh, yeah. right? So historically, gallium has had a bad reputation, partly due to its association with mercury, and partly because it's considered. Eh, a negative attribute that um, this sort of metal has an oxide layer that forms over it. So they're wondering how can you actually use this in circuitry. But actually, the oxide layer is act- is an advantage for gallium because that allows this metal to hold its shape. So then you can do things like um, tiny little drops of gallium stacked on top of one another, um, and then you can drag it along the surface leave a thin trail of oxide that can be used as a circuit so Mm
1: -hmm.
2: taking what people thought was a disadvantage and and turning it on its head to actually make this possible
0: could you make a robot that could kind of slide through a broken car window for instance just thinking off the top of my head uh head first and then like kind of be in the passenger seat next to you while wearing an lapd costume right i
1: think that's the, the key right there it has to be wearing an LAPD costume. Yeah.
0: yeah. You no, know, like SFPD or something like that.
1: Right, right, right. It's got to be true to form here. So, <laughs> That's right. So, Steffi, is this possible?
2: I mean, the future possibilities are endless.
0: You know, my old boss Walt Disney once said, if you can dream it, you can do it.
2: With malleable metal.
0: Yeah. Well, they they often cut <laughs> out that part. Um, and that, that was when he was getting towards old age and <laughs> just talking a bunch of crap. <laughs>
1: Like, oh, Um, old Walt's got a little gallium poisoning again. Let's just uh, cut off his words.
0: If you've listened to the podcast before, you know that we often delve into some of the weirder stories in science. Things that are especially creepy or create a feeling of existential dread are like right in our wheelhouse. What you probably don't know is that these stories are put on the dock almost exclusively by me, James, your host. Maybe I've been spending too much time recording stories from pulp from beyond the veil. However, our final story was first pitched by Steffi, who I'm assuming hasn't slept since. I have not. <laughs> in a recent article in the journal Matter by University of California, Santa Barbara grad student. I don't know what UCSB's mascot is. William Wonderly looks at the peculiar composition of the four pronged jaws of the bloodworm the fact that they're reinforced with copper is unique and probably the least troubling fact about this annelid... That can invert its digestive system, allowing it to project a hollow chamber at its would-be prey, pulling them toward their venomous maw that, due to copper reinforcement, can punch through things as hard as a mollusk shell with venom that is potent enough to cause a serious reaction in humans. So just a trifecta of terrible, terrible things within this tiny little bloodworm, which I've held in my hand before. I didn't realize that was staring death in the face at the no. time. Oh Yeah. And uh, you know these are these are often used for fishing, and, and I think didn't they go to like a bloodworm emporium in Maine for for some of their things?
2: It's bloodworm depot.
0: Bloodworm depot. Yes, yeah, sorry. Bloodworm emporium is their crosstown rival.
1: <laughs> no, it's depot bloodworm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> is there a subreddit in Maine on this? Probably. <laughs> but- She's better. Blood Depot. Bloodworm Depot or Depot? Bloodworm.
0: <laughs> Which one has the um, uh, stronger uh, copper reinforced jaw?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to go to either of them.
0: <laughs> I think that could be our first. I'm not that far away, probably. I can go to Bloodworm Depot for this episode. Talk to a Mainer. Anyway oh can you please <laughs> what do we think about these miniaturized uh nightmare fueled annelids that apparently catch trout and could also create a serious allergic reaction in humans when they bite our hands with their copper reinforced jaws
2: okay first thing they're not miniature mm-hmm. they're 15 inches long they're just
0: Mm. So I was comparing them no. to... Uh, that's the other thing I didn't talk about in the intro. They talk about Dune a lot in this article. So I was comparing them to the, the Dune sandworms as far as my size scale.
1: Um, these things are awesome. They really are awesome. I mean, what in are the, the...
0: The original sense of the word. They inspire Yeah, no, off. for sure.
1: So, you know, the, you mentioned, James, that they're annelids, um, which is important because... Annelids are a particular type of worm, uh, meaning that they're segmented worms, which means that they have, you know, a segmented nervous system that similar to what we have. You know, I often, when we teach, when we teach our students about the distribution of spinal cord innervations throughout the body. So, eat, you know, our spinal cord has different levels. And at every single vertebral level, we get spinal nerves, as you know, James. Steffi may not know this, although she may. Our listeners may or may not know this also. So, basically, we... You can look at the distribution of those nerves um, across the skin, and if that's a banded pattern that we call dermatomes, and uh, those dermatomes represent, you know, sort of which region of skin is innervated by which segmented nerve. So we are segmented worms that have evolved a little bit further along the line. But these things are not too far behind. They have really powerful jaws with teeth that have metal in them. Um, If you look at the shapes of these teeth, and there's an image that we have uh, here that we're going to put in the show notes, these things are frightening. And there's not just one of them. Right. It does look like like a weapon. weapon. It looks like an eagle talon. Right. It looks razor sharp. But there's also a really strong shearing Crest on this tooth, which means it's probably razor sharp. It's frightening, and they're not that far behind where we are in a in the grand scheme of things. They are they have a really well developed circulatory system, um, a really well developed digestive system. They have excretory organs. I mean, they're not that far away from the way that we are structured, and that's terrifying. And we haven't even talked about their uh, proboscis, right?
0: Yeah, so I kind of touched on that. That is the thing that can shoot out by inverting their digestive system. Uh, and, and That's correct. Latch onto prey.
1: Right, and it's called yeah. an e-versed proboscis, right? Meaning that it's it's being protruded from the inside. It's like basically turning the inside of the digestive system outward, spitting it out there, and then grabbing stuff to bring it back in to eat with these frightening teeth.
2: And you were holding in your hand.
1: Yeah. I
0: was. You didn't
2: know the power in your hand.
0: I didn't. I didn't appreciate the power. Uh, They looked, when they're not under, and I think that's maybe the thing, like, uh, the average person wouldn't appreciate, is when you put these fangs under magnification, like high-def magnification, they look like a Geiger sculpture. This is the aesthetic of the Alien series of movies. It it is really, like, neo-space gothic looking. It's kind of, it's incredibly creepy.
1: It's true. But let's also keep in mind that even though I have, you know, sort of built this up as something that's not too developmentally dissimilar to us, it is more closely related to the other annelids like earthworms and leeches. So it is still more closely related to those than it is to us. But we have a lot of the, of similar characteristics here, and it's not too far down that evolutionary tree in the grand scheme of things from single-celled organism a multi-celled organism right to get from from this bloodworm that one can buy at the depot or not at the emporium and uh get to us
0: let's talk about the thing that does make it interesting and different from the other annelids, though and it's the it's the thing that i said was like the least troubling aspect of it it's the fact that these fangs jaws clamps ah uh retention devices are actually mineralized with copper rather than just having like free copper in the bloodstream, which a, a lot of organisms do. Uh, this was the first time that it's been noted that this has actually been used as a source of reinforcement of something that would be like, mm-hmm. it, I mean, I'm sure the biochemical processes are different, but that would be like us being able to pool something other than calcium like copper from our blood system and put it into our bones which uh i don't know jason you were talking about how we're not that different after all is there a way that we could figure out uh, to to do this maybe not with copper but with other free minerals that are floating around the bloodstream maybe we have a osteoporosis treatment right here in this blood worm i'm just thinking of things that aren't nightmare fuel to yeah. talk about with these worms
1: i mean i don't even think we need to go that far down the The trackway here, right? I mean, we've got caps on our teeth that we already do, right? It's literally the same thing, except instead of using copper, we're using something else, right? Gold, silver, various other things. I don't know what they use in fillings anymore, but it's probably not gold or silver. But the point is, it's reinforcing that enamel structure of the tooth or whatever it is, whatever protein is being used in here, right? Uh, and minerals being used in here to form this tooth. And I don't re- um, remember the details well enough uh, to recall, but, you know, it's still a reinforcement of that organic material with an inorganic material. And that's, that's really clever. Also kind of frightening, right? I mean, it's, it's not just that they have these teeth, yeah. that, this, that they yeah. reinforce it with metals could do some serious so- damage. you right. And let's be honest It's copper, which is really conductive, and we're not too far away from like electric bloodworms. (laughs) It's totally possible.
0: The look on Steffi's face, dear listener, I just terrified. (laughs) Is 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 one of I work in fusion for a reason,
2: (laughs) so I don't get bit by bloodworms. But so let's bring it back to
1: she's happy to melt her face off. Yeah, but you know that would be her own mistake.
2: So we'll bring it back to Bloodworm Depot. Because that's where that's where they were able to um get bloodworms to do gene sequencing to understand more about the multitasking protein that attracts and possesses copper from the bloodworms environment to these terrifying teeth. And what was really interesting is that the researchers found most proteins, like multitasking proteins, are very complicated um, to reproduce. And Mm -hmm. this talks about when you want to synthesize these things for applications. Um, However, they found out when they were doing the gene sequencing, these were actually very simplistic in the bloodworm, almost exclusively using only two amino acids, glycine and histidine. Um, So really, maybe we can be... Bloodworms with copper teeth someday.
1: Yeah, we just need to synthesize right? this protein to help us pull the copper in our natural environments into our tooth surfaces, yeah. right? So
0: you're saying we're one protein away from a copper age within our own bloodstream?
2: I, I'm, you know what? I'm just a fusion scientist reading a bloodworm article right. and <laughs> making some scary. I think
1: evolutionarily speaking, we're we're like one protein away from all sorts of stuff, right? Including death. So you know, and actually probably in more ways than other than others, right? (laughs) So, um, so yeah, we're always one protein away from something. Mm. This time, though, we are one protein away from at least understanding how this transport works really well and being able to um, synthesize it for an application outside of biology. I think the real question that
0: this paper poses is who would win in a one-on-one battle a bloodworm or a cone snail
1: Ooh, yeah. that's a good question well uh, the bloodworm has um what six entra- six extra inches on it on the cone yeah. snail mm-hmm. but the cone snail has a hard shell right but the but the bloodworm paper- can bite
2: through the hard shells yeah.
0: True. It, did, True. it did specifically point that out, that it can bite through a mollusk yeah. show. Maybe they're it fans did. of the show. And they knew that we'd eventually get to this.
2: <sighs> Whatever it is, they're both not making me sleep tonight. Yeah. So.
0: Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think what this really shows is the importance of mentorship within the scientific enterprise. And after this break, we're going to talk to Associate Professor of Organic Chemistry at Holy Cross University, Dr. Andre Isaacs. But first, a message from a podcast that I think you will enjoy. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Phil. And together, we host the History's B-Side Podcast. You know, history is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. Every week we break down history's biggest stories and the forgotten people who made them happen. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Or follow at History's B-side on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. This is History's (laughs) B-side. welcome back to the science night podcast tonight i am so excited to introduce you to our next guest he is the associate professor of chemistry at the college of holy cross welcome to the podcast dr andre isaacs
3: thanks for having me i'm excited to be here
0: I have rarely been this excited to talk to somebody. I have so much I want to ask you, and we're going to get into it. And hopefully by the end, I'll be a little bit more willing to show off my own dance moves on social media. But (laughs) that is a long road to get to that point. So the first question I want to ask you is the question I ask everybody. And that is,
3: tell us a little bit about yourself. What is it that you do? Right. That's a a good question because you're right. I don't get that one very much. What it is that you do? Well, I do a lot of things, but I guess when I think about what I do primarily, I think of myself as an educator. So I, you know, I teach at the College of the Holy Cross. I've been there for about 10 years now. And, um, you know, I work with, you know, a great population, an impressionable population, ages 18 to 22, and I teach organic chemistry. But I think in my teaching, what I also strive to do is to inspire young people to find their passion, whether it is chemistry or not, <laughs> but just to find some kind of passion. And I've had a number of students come through my classes that, and lab that, that have ended up in very different fields, but still have taken on what we've worked on and, and hopefully the inspiration I've given them to become great people in their, their different professions.
0: You do some advising for non-STEM students.
3: And oh, yes.
0: I think that's so interesting because I am so far away from that part of undergraduate studies that I forget that there are non-STEM students sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me a little bit about that relationship where you're talking to somebody that is is very different from what you're doing in your day to day with maybe your lab students.
3: Yeah. So, um, well, what's kind of cool about teaching at a liberal arts college, at least or college, um, is that embedded in or responsibility <laughs> is um, advising students who are freshmen, sophomores until they decide on a major. Right. And when they do, they are transitioned to an advisor in that department so i've had that experience and i currently do have that experience on a larger scale which is i signed up to be one of the first year advisors where i exclusively advise freshmen and so i have a few others in um in the major as well but I am one of the dedicated first year advisors. Mm. And so that's kind of a formal way through which I work with a lot of non-chemistry majors <laughs> or STEM majors. And, and those relationships, you know, they build, you know, many want to keep, you know, they have, they're like, can I not declare my major so I can work with you? For <laughs> year? I'm like, you need to go to your department. We've decided you're going to major in English. <laughs> so <laughs> this will be the and for- formal academic um, advising relationship. But many of those remain informal after that. And um, we talk about their career goals, um, what their summer plans are, they'll ask me for letters, and so forth. But the informal advising generally for me starts with students who seek me out for various reasons. Um, a number will seek me out because they're like, there's a Black professor at the college and I feel like he would understand this issue or he's an immigrant um you know he's queer and so a lot of students will seek me out for um because they're comfortable i would say um sharing their concerns with me or because they just think i'm cool and they're like i want to talk to to this guy i think he might get it so so i have a number of students i I work with um informally i also advise um the the faculty advisor for a number of student groups (laughs) so club tennis, ballroom dance, the acapella group, Fools on the Hill. And so I, I get to know a lot of students who are not STEM majors. And, you know, I choose to be advisor for those organizations because of my interest in those things. And so so I, I, I'm i building kind of a, a, a large list of students that I work with outside <laughs> of my department. I've only
0: been talking to you for a little bit. And... I feel like I could really tell you anything. I think you're gaining this Rolodex because you are absolutely yourself. And I think that is the most important thing for people in STEM to be. Uh, One of our passions here at the podcast is to kind of demystify the scientist and push them into their... I don't want to say spotlight, but bring the scientists forward and maybe let the science stay back for a little bit. I think you're doing that super well, so it makes sense that everyone wants you to be involved in what you're doing, and you're just fun. <laughs> you're, you're, you, know, you know, these are some kind words. <laughs> you know, that's I wasn't going to bring you on and roast you, but uh, <laughs> maybe that's for the next uh, the next appearance. My students appearance. do
3: roast me, so you know, I I, I can handle it. <laughs>
0: Well, and, you know, I think that's part of it, too. So uh, you have chemistry students and you have um, graduate students. You have you have your lab students, I should say. And there are times when sometimes that relationship could be a little bit more. I don't want to say tenuous. There's the times where where you have to be a little more strict but then there's also the opportunity for students to bring that levity back into that space. How important do you think that give and take is to keep that relationship from getting toxic in the lab?
3: That is an excellent, excellent question. And, you know, we cannot pretend it's all rosy and <laughs> there are never any issues, you know, between students and faculty, even if, you know, like, you know, you showcase a more positive side or if it's generally more Overall positive relationship. So first of all, I only have undergraduate students in mm, my lab okay. because we are a primarily undergraduate institution, um, actually exclusively undergraduate. Okay. Um, so all of my coworkers, my research coworkers slash students, are all still in college, and so. You know, that's an important thing to consider when you think about the types, the dynamic that exists, um, you know, between them and, and myself. Generally speaking, you know, I have a really good relationship with my students. I empower them to take on the work they're doing and to own it, first of all. Um, I empower them to, to seek me out when you have questions about the work um, they're doing. but But I also tell them to share with me. <laughs> Whenever they're having mental health issues, mm-hmm. whenever you know they're struggling with their classes that might impact their productivity in the lab, um, so that I can be aware and um, i can we can discuss how they will do work that particular week, right, and so I'm aware mm-hmm. and I'm not you know breathing fire down their back, you know discuss a strategy for getting the work done that we've already discussed, so that's one thing that alleviates the the potential drama. But when it comes down to it, there are moments when I do have to talk to a student more seriously and say, you know, we've talked about this and you're not pulling your weight, or you know, you haven't, you know, been very careful with the part with particular experiments, or, you know, there might be a time when a student's becoming a little bit reckless in the lab. And so I think what happens for me is when I have these conversations, I try to preface it with my strong belief in a student you know the fact that you're in the lab you're doing work because I believe in you and I typically tell them I think you're underperforming and you know you might want to think about what's um, affecting you currently in your life that might be causing you to not be doing the work you're doing and and I feel like that's a good way of addressing it I allow them I'm like you know if there's something going on share with me let me know we can talk about it and that often kind of lowers the temperature in the room. And then we can have a productive conversation about how it is um, we can move forward. And for the vast majority of the time, they're going through something. <laughs> they yeah, just didn't sure. hear. uh And so those conversations lead to us like working, helping them work through whatever issues they might have. And then 10 minutes later, we're all smiling again. <laughs> yeah. So you know, that's I feel kind of my approach, Yeah.
0: I feel like every if we have a lot of PIs listening to this right now, I feel like that is the takeaway that you should you should have. You can have these serious conversations and then you can bring it back to a level where we can be professional and productive and also have fun and not have these horror stories that we hear. You know, I really wish I had a PI in undergrad that I could be like, I'm I'm not having a great day. I I don't think I would have came away feeling great about the conversation afterward, which is a whole different situation. (laughs) Uh, And it's a a situation that has gotten better as, as a... Kind of umbrella but it's still something that needs to be
3: worked on yeah i also want to add one more thing i think that's important is to, to let students because we all think we're perfect right well i don't think i'm perfect but a lot of times as an advisor i think we we don't recognize that the ways in which we interact with students can change from day to day and we can introduce mm. some toxicity to the relationship sure through the sure. sort of things we do oftentimes you're having a bad day in another meeting and all of a sudden you take on a stronger tone or you might snap at something you usually don't snap at right mm-hmm. and and students see this and they can they oftentimes are aware of these changes in your behavior or approach and so I tell my students, I'm like, if I'm having one of those days, just ask me, like, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, it goes both ways. And I empower them, like, well, am I being snappy? And they're like, yeah, you're kind of being snappy. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. I will, I need to tone it down a little bit. So I tell them, you know, and, and let them know that if they are having a negative experience with me, they should also share that with me. Because a lot of times we're not aware that we are the ones who are making the space toxic. yeah. <laughs> It, it really
0: sounds like in your lab, uh, you're more concerned with creating a team rather than having this little fiefdom in which you can uh, rule over. Does
3: that sound accurate? Yeah, I think happy students make happy, sci- happy and productive scientists. Yeah, and it, it's in my best interest to have students who, who want, want to be there. Um, yeah. And so I, I want, you're right, I, for me, it's a community. I, I want to build an environment, um, a community of practice. Of scientific practice.
0: One of the great things that I I read about you earlier today was a, a quote where you talk about how failure is okay. And I've always said that failure is part of science, especially admitting that you failed. And that can be kind of difficult to do if you're an undergraduate and you want to make it seem like you're pulling your weight. So how do you convey the fact that failure is okay?
3: Yeah, I tell them exactly. I tell them immediately. I say ninety percent of what you do over the next two years, you're working in the lab, will not work. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I tell them that if anything, research is going to make them tougher and stronger to face challenges and and any any <laughs> anything that doesn't go their way, they'll be able to, you know, water off a duck duck's back, just like brush it off. It's something I tell them that the failure is just as useful as success right and i think oftentimes when we hear speakers talk scientists speak they They really don't talk a lot about their failures, and when they do talk about their failures, they only talk about it in the context of their eventual success in that area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know most times if a project isn't working and it's not successful, it doesn't make it onto the slides right sure. We won't discuss that unless there's a a rainbow at the end and so I, I you know I tell my students that you know we don't have journals that publish negative results, and that kind of colors what we what we expect from ourselves, and so they You know, they they know that I I strongly believe that failure is a part of the process and that they should be happy with failing. I think they should learn from failing. And I said, whatever you found, for example, if we're doing a reaction or trying to develop some conditions for transformation, like whatever conditions you found to not work, you know, will inform what we do next mm-hmm. uh, and will you know help us to figure out what we should try or what we shouldn't try and so i, I try to 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 tell them to look at it that way um, and they seem to embrace that of course it's not always good enough to build morale for students if everything they, they do just fails <laughs> so sometimes inevitably you might have to pull the plug on um from a project or just switch them to something else or you know go in the lab and do it with them. Like, Oh, I mm-hmm. can't get it to work either. It's not you. So I've often done that.
0: Yeah. I, and I feel like that is the importance of creating that community feeling in the lab rather than this situation where you're terrified to go to the PIs bench and ask them for something. Uh, Cause that's, that's when you get people trying to, like, cover up bad results. And yes. And that's when you get bad science. Um, and who knows what that could have, if, if it's happening to an undergraduate, what that reverberation is going to be down the line. Um, so, yeah, another another message to all the PIs listening out there. Avoid bad science. <laughs> let your students fail. And, you know, let them know when you fail, too.
3: Exactly. I mean, I tell them, like, oh, I couldn't get this to work. I tried it over the summer. Didn't get it.
0: You know, you talked about journals not publishing failures. And, you know, that's another pet peeve of mine is how kind of removed science has gotten from communicating science and just churning out those articles. You know, I feel like this is something we could probably talk to for far too long. But I think you're right. We just need to embrace that and realize that it's part of the scientific method it's actually a big step of the scientific method it's Uh, a
3: huge step yeah i mean i wish i i mean i've read papers and be like why did they not try you know, this protecting group on um, the nitrogen, you know, I'm like, this should work. And then I try it. And then you email them like, Oh, yeah, that one doesn't work. But like, there's no in your paper that says that there is no yeah. where in your paper that says this didn't work. That would have sure. been very helpful for me to not waste two months of my time trying this. Mm-hmm. Reaction. You know, if you found that out, just tell us,
0: I want to talk about you specifically a little bit more. So you mentioned you're an immigrant, you're from Kingston, uh, Kingston, Jamaica yes that's correct i knew you're from jamaica i wanted to get the city right and i did it and now i'm making it seem like i was worried uh again note your failures although i'm probably going to edit that part out (laughs) (laughs) i can see now that you take the mentorship part of your career now very seriously there has to have been mentors along the way to get you to this point to show you the importance of that relationship can you talk about that
3: Wow, you 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 you're this. You have some great questions, and the connections are really good. All right, so <laughs> I think my first mentor, going back to Jamaica, was my uncle. He was inspirational to me uh, in a way that I didn't um, recognize until years later you can't be successful until someone believes in you and oftentimes many of our students and many of us don't realize it we have someone in our corner many of us have our parents or relatives who believe in us who will push us who will do everything they can to help us succeed but for me my uncle was the first person who who believed in me academically and and showed me my worth in a way that that no one had before and so you know he was helping me with my chemistry and my math homework he was you know telling me to set up a lab for him at his his evening school he's like okay you can be the the lab supervisor today I think you can set this up you should go in here and and I was like I am 17 years old (laughs) what are you talking about he's like you've done this he's like go set this up we have this thing later tonight I'll come and see where you're at and I'll help you and there I was And he's right. I saw the lab supervisor, his lab supervisor, who wasn't there that day. And he needed someone. I've seen her do all of this stuff before. I just thought that was something someone in a master's degree needed. And here I was, a 6, 17-year-old, helping set up um, for a lab experiment. And I think that belief was really important. And the way in which he motivated me was just very brilliant and clever. He empowered me In ways that I just, you know, didn't think I was capable of 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 being empowered, for lack of a better word phrase. Um, But yeah, he was the first person to um, really be a great mentor and believed in me so much. So college was, I would say, where I had some other great mentors. My, um, I didn't think about going to um, graduate school Mm -hmm. after Mm -hmm. college. I didn't even know I was going to go to college. First of all, thanks to my uncle who pushed me to go, and I didn't think I was what I was. I didn't know what I was going to do after college with a college degree and so luckily I had two teachers who two professors who really pushed me and they're like you are great you should go to do a PhD I said little me they're like yes you should and so there I was my PhD program and the next person was my PhD advisor who was so helpful when I came out and had like some serious mental health issues and he recognized that I wasn't performing in the way I used to perform and he you know, sent me away to San Francisco and said, go for a month, work at this company with me, want a collaborative mine for a month, get away from here, um, clear your head. And so that was another important mentor relationship that I had that really impacted me. And so if you, there is a common theme here, they were all teachers. Yeah. Right. The people who had the most impact on me, not just professionally, but personally, the different stages of my life were all educators, all people who were, were helping me learn the subject matter at hand, but yet still they were able to, to to help me with my mental health issues. They were able to help me with believing in myself beyond the, the science I was doing. And so I really internalized all of that and really believe deeply that it is my role to pass that on and, and be, be um, that for my students as well. And so that's kind of where all that came from.
0: That's such a great message and such a great gift that you are passing on to the students you have now. And I think the key thing that you talked about there are are the teachers in your life that have made an impact. You know, in science, especially when we talk to people at like the big R1 universities where there's so much emphasis put on graduate student interactions on churning out research on getting published, you know, and being productive in that way. Teaching is kind of a nuisance in some of those things. That's not my opinion. I, uh, when I get to teach anybody in my lab, that's my favorite part of the day. And I'm not going to name names or even (laughs) name initials, but you know, Uh I've I've heard that before, where you're kind of employed at these larger universities as a researcher. Yes. Um, And what really drives me crazy is when those same people complain about undergraduates not knowing anything when they get out of those classes. Like, well, hold on a second, Um, can
3: we wonder who's (laughs) responsible?
0: So I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about your style of teaching
3: and what you Ooh. can kind of bring to the table. Where do I start? Oh my God, I do every and anything in my class. Uh, what don't I do? I'm crazy, first of all. Um, <laughs> I, I like to describe myself as an honorary here <laughs> My students would agree that they've given me that title. But I start off by being genuine, just being real with the students. So you have to start off by breaking down that barrier. They inter- they've already internalized that professors are on some pedestal and are untouchable. And there is this built-in wall that many professors actually help to perpetuate. Sure. You know, that I have this knowledge and you are here to hopefully get 5% of it. And <laughs> you must do everything you can to be in my favor so that you can get some of this in knowledge. And you should grovel at my feet while you're at it. (laughs) I I go into my class and I make it known to my students on the first day that we are collaborators. I don't care how old you are. You are 18, 19, 20. It doesn't matter that I'm twice as old as you all are, but we are collaborators. And we're on a journey, right, to get you to learn the material you signed up for (laughs) in this course. And I'm your guide. And if we view each other as collaborators in this effort, and me as your guide, then I think it makes it a lot easier for students to, to learn. Um, it creates a more positive environment, a collaborative environment, not just between the students and the professors, but it encourages them to work with each other too, because they'll see that you are you are showing them how to study, how to work through problems, and then they in turn can show each other how to do that. And so that's the first thing I do. I walk into the classroom and I break that down. I let them know we're collaborators. Let's work this through. I often say, it's not you against me and the material. It's you and I against the material and we're going to take it down together. Mm -hmm. So that's something I start off by setting the tone. I also make it very clear that I'm going to be as accessible as I can I actually give them points if they come to office hours in the first week of mm-hmm. of, school, of classes because they need to see that I am approachable, that they can come in, they can ask questions. And that something they should make a part of, a weekly tradition of theirs <laughs> should be to come and see me to talk chemistry. I, I throw them to, at the board. I'm like, okay, try that problem. Like, ooh, all right. You know, and we celebrate. Or like, okay, well, we're going to come back next week or let's schedule. I'm going to see you this time come by this standard during episodes and we're going to work through this particular type of problem. And so we kind of build that relationship and keep them interested in coming back and learning and working through the problems. I, I also believe in data and, you know, and we hopefully we all do as scientists, but there's a lot of data out there that shows you that the way we teach needs to be revamped. We're not teaching people in 1950s. That's how many of us learn because our advisors learn from their advisors who learn from their advisors and nothing's changed in the past 70 years in terms of... How we approach teaching, and 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 we have students who live in a generation that that are quite different from how we learn, or even right. our parents learn. Like ninety percent of my students take notes on an iPad, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and so we have to adapt. And so things like, you know, increasing the types of assignments we give students, changing the types of assignments we give students, um, a lot of data that talks about retention of minorities in in um, in STEM, which is a problem. How increasing or course structure um, results in like um, higher retention of of minority students. So different types of assessments, quizzes, homework assignments, um, more frequent exams instead of the one big midterm that everybody just gets demoralized by, Mm. um, spread it out, right, um, over the semester. Yeah, and so accessibility for office hours is one and varied and increased um, types of assignments or types of evaluation is another. And so those are some that I'm sure there are more I'm not thinking of right now, but those are some of the things that I think are really critical to to how I teach. I also try to inspire students with all of that. So you have to bring in ways that connect the material to their lives, right? So you can't just teach things, you know, in isolation, like it becomes too theoretical, right? And so, you know, I use resources as well. There's one that I really like called Bacon. It's out of UCLA by Professor Neil Gard that fuses chemistry, biology, and um, pop culture together. So they're seeing the chemistry as it, you know, in, in, in terms of how it relates to biology, but they're also seeing like how someone used talks about radicals or um, <laughs> on, on friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like, aren't those radicals, those chemistry? You know, and it connects yeah. it all and then they go into the science. So so it really brings students in. And, and, and so we, we have to continually... Are continuously, you know, adapt and learn how to change and think about ways to get them in because we live in a connected world and our yeah. students are connected to everything nowadays, right? It's hard for them who are raised in a time where we are talking about interdisciplinarity, right? But then our courses are like literally nothing interdisciplinary about it at sure. all. And it needs to be interdisciplinary with life. Yeah, (laughs) because that's how they they exist. So we have to find connections um, to everything we teach.
0: That's what one of one of my other passions is trying to de-silo as much as I can within the Academy, within this podcast, you know, it'd be really easy for me to open up my contacts list and have three dozen anatomists lined up for the rest of this season of the podcast. <laughs> that is not what we're going to do. Uh, <laughs> and I think you find more interesting things. I mean, we make a more interesting podcast because we have planetary scientists and chemists and a lot of anatomists too, but you know, <laughs> well, that's that's you got to go.
3: Your connections are, you know, kind
0: that's of. right, that's right. Um, but you know that that follows through to the science too. One of the things that I point out to is the thing that I'm most closely related to is is the study of human evolution, and once the field of biological anthropology started to like play nice with the rest of science. That's when you see all these breakthroughs. And once they made it open sourced, you found even more information. Uh, and I feel like that's a real, I mean, there's a lot of problems in that field that we're not going to talk about now, but I feel like that's a success where if you bring more eyes to look at the thing uh, that creates a better product. And one of the things that you mentioned, that is another huge issue is diversifying STEM. Cause when you bring in new eyes, and new voices and new experiences we all get so much more benefit and that's it's it's easy for me to say that looking the way i do and and um having the position that i do um but i think you know having your students being able to see you and see you being your authentic self is really important to helping solve that problem. So that's not really a question. That's just me telling you you're doing great (laughs) again, but, but if there's anything you want to add to that,
3: um, the floor is yours. Yeah, no, you're very right. You summed it up really well. It makes me think of this, um, 2015 journal of labor economics paper, that a bunch of people have cited, Um, they did some work and they found when they evaluated two and a half million scientific papers that the ones that were most cited or the highest impact factors are the ones that had the most diverse Mm co-authorships. So that's data for people who don't believe that diversity is actually (laughs) critical to our overall productivity. But you're also right when you point out that we need different eyes and to ask different questions. Mm -hmm. And diversity is one way we can find a different you know viewpoint you know someone like have we ever thought about doing this diverse people think about problems differently and, and ask different questions and so you are right you know one thing i always thought was about how you know as a diverse person oftentimes we you know we are expected to pretty much assimilate mm-hmm, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and and a lab culture can be very toxic sure. um one that as we like to say in organic chemistry the the synthesis jocks Kind of take over <laughs> the, the space <laughs> and dominate with their their male cis male um, heterosexual toxicity, <laughs> but um, but you know we have to create spaces that invite also invite people to use their diversity mm-hmm. for good, and so so that's the next question, you know, uh, the next challenge is how do advisors create a space that is clearly one that invites everyone to bring the right, best. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, you think about, I think about the the journals and when they ask you to write, to review things, you know, they're often saying, you know, is this work innovative? Is it novel? And, and you can't ask people to do novel and innovative work if they're not bringing their entire selves to the table.
0: So one of the things I wanted to talk about on that topic of creating this environment, and you know, we had to talk about it eventually. Is your second career on TikTok? Second uh, career, you know,
3: that <laughs> didn't realize it was a career. I guess maybe it, it is.
0: I mean, if you're if you're saying this is so easy that there's not a lot of time put into it, then you are even more talented than I've given you credit for already. Um, so. I I'm I'm not going to lie and say that I've stumbled across you by reading this paper in a a chemistry journal um cuz as an anatomist we try to forget chemistry exists um <laughs> but your TikTok videos are incredible uh and it also is are these like 7 to 15 second snapshots of your relationship with your students So, did you use this platform to further a message, to just create a community? Uh, What brought you to TikTok?
3: One word. The pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like like many other people, um, March 2020, we were all sent home. And faculty were given a week to just figure out how you're going to transition online. That I did. And then you wrote your lectures, you did them on Zoom, and then you're stuck inside and you're bored. (laughs) so, you know, I was literally just getting videos sent to me by friends. Everyone was trying to find a way to, you know, to cope. And um, a lot of TikTok videos made it into my text message inbox. And then I was like, I could make videos too. Uh And so I was like, I'm going to download it. I'm going to see what this thing is. So I did. I downloaded it and being the curious person, I'm like, wow, some of these transitions and things are challenging. How do people do that? And, you know, eventually learned how to do some of these transitions and was just experimenting with it just for fun, made videos and laughed, sent to my friends. And it was a summer later that I, I went back to lab or was allowed to go back to lab eventually. And um, I was just, oh, I should make one with me in my lab. i mm-hmm. um, just like working. And that was when it kind of took off. Um, a lot of people saw me. Um, they're like, wow, a queer black scientist who seems like he's having fun. This is not, the representation is one. That's not, I didn't expect in terms of the orientation and the the racial identities, but also he's having fun. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, so, you know, people really were drawn to that and I was like, oh, well, you know, I, I'm going to just keep making videos to showcase, you know, how I am in, as a chemistry professor, as a, as a scientist, and of course, um, my relationship with my students, which is a huge part of what I do as a scientist and as a teacher. And so that's kind of where it started. And, you know, I've gained a, a following since then. And and I keep being authentic, you know, by like making videos that I think represent me and my students or interactions, what I stand for and and, and kind of will continue to do that.
0: You know, I'm finding that the real secret to your success and maybe the secret to saving science as a whole is is authenticity. You've brought that out a couple times and you know, reading reading the things that you say and watching your videos, you are never anything other than yourself and I think it is so important for people to see that cuz you know, you talked about assimilation it would be really easy for you to just fall into that as a pathway to success, but you've taken the harder and I would assume more um, rewarding path in doing that, and I, I can imagine that it wasn't always easy. Um, what were some of the things that you had to remind yourself to get you through those more difficult times?
3: Yeah, I struggled a lot with imposter syndrome. I mean, I, who doesn't? I still do. You know, every time I, you know, have those moments where I I feel less than or or the imposter syndrome comes back, you know, I remind myself of of my mentors who made it clear to me that they believe in me. And that's usually what gets me through. I'm like, other people believe in you, other people believe in what you do. I've had made an impact on a number of students who tell me that a lot. Um, And so I have to remind myself, you know, whenever I enter a, a dark place that you know there are people in the community who who appreciate what i do and and that i have actually had an impact and i and i want to continue to have an impact so you know we all have our moments right we all have times when you know we go to a dark place or you know we just have too much on our plate that particular day or certain challenges that push us into a darker place and so i have to remind myself that that i, I am worthy i am doing good work and and there are people who um uh, appreciate that yeah such a beautiful energy to bring
0: into that relationship with the students and and pull that uh, legacy of mentorship forward that brought you from you know beautiful sunny tropical Kingston Jamaica to please don't remind me <laughs> equally you know equally beautiful and occasionally sunny couple Occas- weeks out of the year Worcester Massachusetts.
3: <laughs> oh, let me tell you,
0: <laughs> you know, I guess I guess that's another question of just. Uh, Getting acclimatized to winter,
3: uh that that was probably interesting, huh? Oh, let me winter was I remember living in in Worcester the first time. It was tough. I was not accustomed to the food. I was like, we're the spices. Oh I was yeah. Not accustomed to the the, the, yeah. the snow was just too much. It was cute the first time. Okay. I'll yeah. tell you that much. But once it went above four or five inches to 20, 25 inches, like, this, is, <laughs> this is no longer exciting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know,
0: what, food in Worcester in the wintertime, it gets very Caucasian very
3: fast. <laughs> I, yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I so then I moved I to Boston that.
3: after I started working here. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. A year later, I was like, I'm moving to Boston. At least I'm being a bigger city, you know? So I commute sure. to Boston, Worcester with it bigger city i'll find some jamaican food um <laughs> you know there's there's something to be said a lot of still a lot of a
0: lot of irish food to contend with <laughs> in boston but it, get, it does get a little better um you know i i'm saying this from vermont where you if you put too much salt on something you really get some looks your way uh, <laughs> um so I want to kind of finish up by asking you, you know, you're, you're very, you're a very busy person. You give a lot of yourself to your students and to your career. And and that comes across with everything you're saying. But I feel like with everybody who's able to give that much of themselves, they have to have found a way to avoid burnout and carve out that time for themselves. So uh, have you been able to do that? And what
3: are some tips that you can give some people? The answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> do we ever figure out how to do that? Uh, uh, we yeah. think we we think we have, and we're like, it's really hard. And I think it's hardest for the people who care the most. I think the more you care about this type of work, the harder it is for you to step away. Uh, and I don't say that mm-hmm. just from my own perspective, but I've talked to a number of other people who are really, really involved with students and a lot of people involved in diversity equity and inclusion work and it's just it's something they can't step away from because they're like well who else is going to do this work and how are my students yeah. going to survive if i don't be that person for them however i do make sure i can get enough sleep at night <laughs> and i um i still try to get away so i i try to take a few weeks off every year um during the break so summertime, a few weeks off Winter time, went to Florida this year for three weeks. Um, nice. I did work a little bit or a bunch, but it was <laughs> a different space. And I was there in warm weather, you know, get away from New England. And I was able to to take some time for myself. So I try to do that. During the semesters, however, it's just a mad rush. Everything just happens. Sure. Sure. It yeah. starts at the end of January and then you blink and it's the middle of May. But yeah, I do try to, to step away if I feel as if I, I can't handle all that I have on my plate. It, it's really hard to say no, um, because a lot of the things I get asked to do are things I really believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, try to carve, carve some time out if I can to, yeah. to do it, but it's just, it's a tough balance. Yeah. It's a really tough balance. Burnout is real. And unfortunately we see it a lot with people who, who, um, really care deeply about students and this type of work.
0: As someone who is benefiting now by the generosity you have with your time, uh, I don't want to take too much of it. So uh, the last thing I just want to give you is an opportunity to tell us how we can follow you, how we can support you, uh, how we can keep track of what you're doing in new
3: and new and innovative ways to teach the students. That also means I'm now pressured to put out good content or <laughs> to know make sure for people to benefit from <laughs> I
0: promise you, if you look at the follower count between me and you, I think I am pressured to put out good content around this episode.
3: <laughs> um, well, um, yeah, so I have my social media accounts. So the ones I primarily use are TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. And my handle is the same on all three. It's um, drdre4000, D-R-D-R-E-4000. So yeah, those are my handles that I I use. You know, if people are interested in following me, they'll get to see me be... I have a great time with my students. Sometimes I post like educational content. Sometimes I post some content around diversity, equity, and inclusion. But the primary type of content I put out is really just a day in the life of. Is how I think about it. A moment or a moment in the life of this is what we're doing. These are the ideas we have. and Here are my students and, and we're having a good time.
0: This has been my conversation with Dr. Andre Isaacs. Andre, thank you so much for talking to me. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Andre for taking the time to talk to me. We will have links to everything he does at our website, and you definitely want to check out his TikTok account And the unlikely event that you're not already following him. You have come to the end of another episode of the Science Night Podcast, but there is plenty more on the horizon, so be sure to follow us on social media. If you want to follow me, I am at James underscore Read 3, where you can see me talk about the greatest team in the history of the NBA, the Philadelphia 76ers, and I'm sure I will not change that opinion at any point in the near future. Steffi, where can everybody find you?
2: You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or Instagram at Starshipin.
0: Jason, where can everybody find you?
1: You can find me on Twitter at OregonJM. Let's go blues. And
0: you can follow the show at ScienceNight1 on Twitter. And also be sure to check out our home on the web, SciNight.com, with links to everything we talked about today, past episodes, and links to all of our social media. And most importantly, our merch if you are looking for a low-stakes way to support the show, why not go to our merch store and buy one of our sticker packs? We're going to be having some new designs coming out. But right now, we have a pack of all of our logos. So go to cynitecom merch and pick one up today. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. And until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz.
1: Data. Just kidding. <laughs>
2: I don't know which one it we saying.
0: We're going with Data because it's Star Trek. Yeah. It's star Trek.
2: <laughs> when in doubt, Star Trek it.
1: <laughs> that, that Star Trek's out.
0: Oh, God. There's the singer.